Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. America's founding ideals and our nation's rich Judeo-Christian heritage have been under constant attack from the so-called progressive left for decades. Yet, as they march through and deconstruct our great institutions, America's sense of despair and decline only grows. It seems as the left prevails, the rest of us lose. It's growing more and more clear that our human flourishing depends mightily on a successful cultural counter-revolution. Helping to lead this fight and to think through the critical political and cultural issues facing America are the people at EPPC, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, led by its president, Ryan Anderson, and senior fellow, Roger Severino. Prior to leading EPPC, Ryan Anderson was the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's also the founding edit editor of Public Discourse and the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment, and Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. He's a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Princeton and received his doctoral degree from political philosophy from the University of Notre Dame. Ryan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yes. In response to the Biden's administration's hostility the Sound Medicine and the Rights of Conscious, EPPC has launched a major initiative called the HHS Accountability Project, led by Roger Severino. Uh, be before joining the center, Roger was director of the Office of Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where he led a team of over 250 people protecting our nation's civil rights, conscience, and religious freedom. Roger holds a JD from Harvard Law School, a master's degree in public policy from Carnegie Mellon, and a bachelor's degree in business from the University of Southern California. Roger, welcome. Glad to be with you. We chatted before the show. We've got a lot to cover today. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> uh, let's start with the mission of, of your group. What's sure. The center, what's the center about? Uh, EPPC is all about reminding the American public that ethics needs to be at the heart of public policy. Um, and not just that it needs to be, but there's no escaping it. Every piece of public policy, every piece of law embodies someone's morality. And we work to make sure that our laws embody true morality. Um, there's no such thing as moral neutrality when it comes to the law, whether it's private property, free speech, definition of marriage, our laws about homicide. They're all embodying some vision of the good, the true, and the beautiful. We work to make sure that it's going to be the correct vision of the true, good, and beautiful. Um, our DNA, we are in formed by the biblical tradition, the Judeo-Christian moral tradition, and the natural law tradition. And we, and we think those two things have something to say to each other. And most importantly, we think they have something to say about America. We think the American founding flows out of uh, the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition and the natural law tradition. And we think that America's renewal will be informed by those traditions. And if not, we're going to see America continue to decline. Refresh, refresh, refresh our thinking about what natural law is. Sure. Uh, natural law, I mean, you can see the roots of this going back to the ancients, ancient Greek and Roman thinkers like Aristotle, Plato, uh, Cicero, it's developed Augustine, Aquinas. The basic idea is that there is um, uh, human nature 
and there's a fulfillment of human nature. There's human flourishing. And the natural law is the part of the eternal law that we can know through reason, not just through revelation. Uh, and that we can know something because God created us as intellectual beings, as rational creatures, where we can reflect upon our nature and the fulfillment of our nature to know what's truly good for us. Um, and that's uh, the directiveness, the law aspect of this, is that we should do what's good and we should avoid what's evil. That's the very first principle of the natural law, according to Thomas Aquinas. And he thinks we can know quite a bit about human nature and human flourishing, um, even apart from the biblical tradition. He also thinks the biblical tradition and the philosophical tradition, when both are done well, mm -hmm. they'll go hand in hand. There won't be any conflicts between faith and reason. These things go together. John Paul II says they're the two wings on which the human spirit uh, uh, um, rises to contemplate truth. Roger, when you studied constitutional law at Harvard, I expect you took that class. I did. And talk about the moral foundations of the Constitution and what informed the founders' thinking as they created it. <clears throat> well, I went to Harvard Law School, so I was not taught about the moral foundations <laughs> of the Constitution <laughs> or the founding. So let's be clear. You learned those elsewhere. I did. I, I had folks like Duncan Kennedy and uh, Elizabeth Warren as professors. Um, Duncan Kennedy is one of the one of the leading lights of critical legal studies, in fact, which is in the news now under critical race theory and critical gender theory. So I didn't get that. Um, in fact, in one of the early classes at Harvard, one of the professors threw up his hands. He said, you know what? You keep asking me what the law is on X, Y, and Z. That's not the right way of approaching it. The law is whatever a judge says it is. And this oh is what a Harvard law professor was teaching mm -hmm. first year law students. The law is whatever a judge says it is. That's antithetical to the natural law tradition. Um, and that's unfortunately just symptomatic of how the progressive left has taken over our institutions and particularly our education institutions as well as uh, legal academia and law firms and the Supreme Court until Trump came and fixed it. So it's coming back in terms of the, the respect for natural law, meaning that there's a law outside of just what the judge says. Um, and, and I think we have to come and, and, and re recapture that tradition saying that reason tells us something about who we are as human beings, how we should live amongst each other, and how, that, how the course of power of the government through law should be justly implemented. And if you don't have that natural law, that morality behind it, it's going to be power, just power, whatever group has yeah. the most power. And, and let me give an example of this. We're coming up to um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, this actually might air by the time um, we've celebrated that. But you know, when Martin Luther King Jr. was in the Birmingham jail, uh, he writes the letter, the famous letter from the Birmingham jail, where he cites both Augustine and Aquinas saying that a man-made law that doesn't square with the eternal law and the natural law is an unjust law. And this just shows that there could be man-made laws that violate the natural law. He was pointing to the law about segregation. Here you have a duly enacted law that violates the natural law. We have laws like that on the books today. Um, and so what we're trying to do is to highlight that our man-made laws, if they're going to be just, need to be in accordance with the natural law and the eternal law. Well, I mentioned despair and decline at the outset, and I'm not in the despair and decline business. I don't really, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't quite. But when you have man-made law, when you have whatever, it's whatever the judge is, there's an arbitrariness to it that you really can't lead your life. You don't know what the rules are, and that's terrible. Well, that's right. We've been living under that with COVID for the last two plus yeah. years. Well, we'll get in. Yeah, Of exactly. not knowing what the rules are. Yeah. And that sort of arbitrariness 
it, it, it shows that whoever has the power gets to call the shots. And if they think they don't have to explain themselves, especially in a democracy, then we're in bad shape. And the growth of the administrative state, of which I was a part, uh, I was a, a career attorney at DOJ. I also led a uh, subcomponent of HHS. You were seven years in the civil rights division right. of the uh, Justice Department. Yes, I was a career That's attorney. sort of the epicenter of the bad stuff. Uh, they did a lot of good stuff, because I do believe in, in civil rights, but... Well, that was a long time ago. ...improperly applied, they do a lot of bad stuff as well. Okay. Yes. Well, isn't that where they want to put the John Lewis uh, law? All the all the power to oversee federal elections will be in that group? The Well, the Voting Rights Division of uh, Civil Rights... of uh, division would be the one that would handle those issues. Yeah, that's right. That's where it would be. And so when you were at HHS, I mean, HHS has the largest budget in the federal government? Oh, yes, indeed. Where does that money go? Well, the big entitlement programs, right? Medicaid, Medicare are just gargantuan. In some cases, it's 20% or more of a state's budget, which goes to show how much influence the federal centralized government has. And if it's the power they have through their budget... They get to set the rules, and that's how we get things like contraceptive mandates, uh, all sorts of violations on civil rights, because they have the power to say, if you don't do X, we're going to take away your federal grants. And that applies to adoption agencies. That applies to states who don't want to expand Medicaid, and they get a gun put the, to their head. Or if they don't want to do transgender surgeries, it, 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 any aspect of human health and uh, social services. If the federal government funds all of it, then the states really are pushed off to the side, not to mention individuals, not to mention civil society, nonprofits, religious organizations. As the federal government grows, it by nature pushes out all these other mediating institutions. And that has deep implications to liberty uh, on many fronts. So Ryan, this project you brought in Roger to implement, this really shines a light on the how this, how your larger purpose bears on specific actions, yep. in this case by the institution of, the, of government, HHS. That's exactly right, because if you have, I mean, the HHS situation is great to show that it's both the growth of government, the big government that Roger was just pointing about, but also getting human nature wrong. They got the nature of the human person wrong. They redefined the word sex to mean gender identity. Um, they're trying to force people to participate uh, in abortions, trying to force pharmacists to dispense uh, um, uh, contraceptive uh, and uh, contraceptives that can cause abortion, even worse, you know, abortifacients are trying to force nuns to cover these things in their health care plans or trying to force hospitals to perform sex reassignment procedures. I mean, everything that we've been dealing with ever since Roe really is getting the nature of the human person wrong, nature of the human person wrong in the womb. Roe v. Wade abortion. Yep. 1973. And so we've had now 49 years of when it comes to health care, getting human nature wrong. Because abortion isn't healthcare, right? Killing isn't caring. Uh, we've seen that at the beginning of life. It's happening at the end of life with some states allowing physician-assisted suicide. We're seeing it now with young people with gender transitions. Uh, and if the Biden administration gets its way, they're going to be trying to um, impose this on all 50 states that they have to uh, transition children. This is going to be part of the standards of care. Um, is it April that we're expecting this regulation to be That's to right. come out? I mean, so, so like this is where like, the overarching mission of EPPC is to see all of our nation's laws um, grounded in sound morality, sound ethics, the E in EPPC, um, HHS being the largest aspect of the federal government, and then healthcare being something that touches so intimately on human nature and the human person. 
if you get this wrong, it's not going to lead to human flourishing. It's going to lead to human suffering. Uh, and that's what we see, what happens when you get, uh, you know, um, bad ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. Well, I think in terms human flourishing is one of the subtitles for this show, and it's it's it just seems to me that our ideas they work, they're moral, they're true, they make people happy, flourish. And if you take the left's ideas, it seems like everywhere they've they've implemented those ideas, people have been miserable. They don't work. Economies collapse. Families disintegrate, and we're left, I think, with pretty much the way we're feeling in America right now. Now, you were a little change change agent there. You were there for three years. You were the four. longest four. Okay, so what what did you find, and what did you change, mm-hmm. and what's Biden doing to unwind <laughs> what you did? How much time do you got? Wait, so <laughs> before we do, let's do a quick reset. This you watch, this is Bill Walton's show, and I'm here with Roger Severino and Ryan Anderson, and we're talking about. Uh, that wonderful agency called HHS and uh, um, how we how uh, Roger did a lot to fix it. And now we're, we're trying to make sure it doesn't get unfixed. Well, HHS had lost its way under Obama. And we restored it as a matter of principle as being the Department of Life. Mm-hmm. We actually restored the mission statement in the strategic plan to say the mission is to protect the health and well-being of all Americans from conception until natural death. And your secretary of HHS when you were there was? Alex Azar and Dr. Price. Okay, great. So we had two. <clears throat> and, and because President Trump uh, had the most pro-life and pro-religious freedom administration in history, we were able to do these sorts of things. Can we stop and enjoy that for a second? This is this real estate guy from Manhattan, you know, a godless guy that never cared about any of this, and all of a sudden he becomes the most pro-life, pro... (laughs) Right. He didn't come from the movement, but when presented with a question, when it mattered, what side is he going to be on, he chose right. And he went all the way. And when the controversial issues on life went up to his desk, and I know the issues that went up to his desk, he decided in the favor of life, in the favor of religious liberty, uh... And we didn't get that with other Republican presidents, and certainly not with other Democratic presidents. And because he gave us the running room and the cover and spoke at the March for Life, he set the tone that it filtered all the way down. So when I showed up at HHS, head of the Office for Civil Rights, it it was an office that most people didn't really know about. But again, this was a civil rights office in the largest federal agency by budget, which means they had tremendous amount of power. And under Obama, they had started issuing rules and mandates that were uh, against the conscience rights of doctors and nurses not to participate in abortions, uh, for states not to force entities to pay for abortions. They, were letting, they weren't enforcing the laws on these issues. And then on the transgender question, redefining sex to be male, female, neither, both, or some combination of male or female. I mean, I'm, I'm practically quoting verbatim as to what the federal position was, as to the nature of human embodiment as male and female. Is, is and it, that was a federal policy when I arrived. Isn't this transgender issue, though, we're going to get into this with your, with your book, but, I mean, it seems like a rule by a tiny, tiny, tiny majority of Americans that somehow got everybody else intimidated that, that, that we're supposed to believe that this is a... What, what percentage of Americans think that what the their agenda they're driving is, is the right agenda? Well, I think it's, it's fairly limited. 
And it depends how the question is asked. So if you see the numbers as how many people self-identify as transgender, you're getting about 0.6%, which has been growing dramatically. There's an epidemic, especially among young girls, clustering. And we have to find out what is the, the, the reason for this? How, this? how is this possible? And I think the main answer is cultural, uh, that you have our culture has changed so much on this question that you could choose, you could change your sex. These notions that were radical just 10 years ago. Well, I'm veering way away from talking about government bureaucracy, but, <laughs> but it seems like this transgender is just the latest in a wave of, like, before we had anorexia, and you know, before that, we had uh, sleeping uh, narcolepsy or something like that, where people couldn't stay awake. And then, it, and then back in the fifties and sixties, everybody had ulcers. It seems like there's these maladies or these things that people deal with. And the transgender thing has been wildly exacerbated by what's going on in social media and these mm -hmm. chat rooms. Right. But it's sort of the, it's sort of the uh, dysfunction du jour. That's why you call it the transgender moment. moment. And, and and it's also like. We'll come back to bureaucracy in a second. We've taken this <laughs> well, I was just saying, This is also not a grassroots phenomenon, by and large. I mean, yeah. th this is something that's being imposed on American culture by activists, uh, and particularly by well-funded activist organizations. Uh, and you can see the timing of this. In the run-up to the Supreme Court's decision on marriage, um, it was the weekend before oral arguments that Bruce Jenner, as he was then calling himself, went on 2020 for that two-hour special where uh, he announced that he would be transitioning. There are all these LGBT activist organizations who knew they were going to get Anthony Kennedy's vote to redefine marriage, but they don't just shut down and declare victory, you know, declare victory, go home. They move to the next thing. And so they right. pivoted from the LGB. We spent two decades debating marriage and then overnight transgender rights are the human rights issue of our generation, you know, loosely paraphrasing our current president. Um, that wasn't something that came from soccer moms, that came from kind of like, you know, the grassroots. That came from the top down. The activist groups got the politicians to do their bidding. Uh, in the very last year of the Obama administration, that was when we started seeing the word sex redefined as gender identity. They assumed Hillary was going to win the election. And after uh, the Obama people did the legal dirty work, Hillary would just solidify it. Instead, they got Roger. Roger undoes all of this. The Trump administration undoes it. And now the Biden administration's in the process of reimposing it. But I think it's important to notice that this is not something that the American people are clamoring for. I mean, parents, this is an existential worry that they have. You look at the Loudoun County school system, you look at why all those school board meetings end up in like, you know, soft riots. Parents do not want their kids being taught this. They don't want boys in their daughters' bathrooms when they're you know, competing against their girls in athletics. They don't want their kids coming home questioning the goodness of their embodiment as a boy or a girl. Um, the American public's on our side of this issue. It's the elites and the special interests that aren't on our side. Well, so I want to swing back to get through what the thing, what are the three or four big things you changed there? <clears throat> well, the, the biggest legacy was starting a conscience and religious freedom division at HHS Civil Rights. What I had realized was that the left had taken over much of the government institutions and had created infrastructure that was self-perpetuating to further their ends. Um, some of those ends were fully within the law and fully appropriate. Some of that was over-aggressive and the, the administrative state going beyond its bounds. I wanted to say, let's find all the laws that protect conscious religious freedom and actually start enforcing them. Hmm. And that's what we did. 
So we stood up with 18 career professionals, uh, a unit, and the complaints started coming in en masse because we were open for business. And one of the cases I'm most proud of was a nurse who was actually forced to assist in an abortion against her will after she told her bosses that she couldn't as a matter of faith and, and morals. She was protected by federal law uh, against that sort of discrimination, could have lost her job, could have lost her, her license, and she was tricked into doing it. And imagine having, facing that, that crisis of conscience, and, and she unfortunately you know, went through with it and was scarred ever since. We were there to find a violation and sue uh, under federal law. Now that Biden's in office, they dropped the lawsuit. They absolutely mm -hmm. abandoned this nurse. And that just shows the difference that policy makes by who's in place. The people calling the shots now are hostile to religious freedom claims. They're captured by the abortion left. And we've seen this in the rollbacks of the policies. Now, the division that I, I helped stand up is still there. They've been stripping away their authorities though, over time. Uh, and then a lot of the efforts on the transgender mandates that I rolled back. Interesting story, I actually met with Dr. Rachel Levine who was a transgender activist, uh, who met with me and we discussed the, the question of human embodiment because I had to make the decision, what are we gonna, how are we going to interpret the laws of, uh, on discrimination with respect to what it means to be a male or female? And I asked that question to Dr. Levine. What does it mean to be male or female? The answer I got back was gobbledygook. And guess who's essentially the number two, number three at HHS now? Uh, it's actually Dr. Rachel Levine, yeah. and now they are calling the shots. Well, we for have, now, we have, for I had now. Michael Pack on here. You know, Michael Pack was a very successful documentary filmmaker who was chosen by Donald Trump to run the agency that runs Voice of America, and he told a story about coming into the agency, but he only had a year because they took forever to get him finally approved by the Senate. He got incredible pushback from the permanent staff. I mean, if you're 250 people in, in HHS and in your, in your unit, how many people were with you on this and how many people did you have to? Uh... You'd be surprised. The approach I took uh, was trying to make everybody's everyday life happy. And because I believed in conscience, I said, look, if you disagree with the policy direction on life, on transgender issues, you do not have to work on it. And I know some people had worked on going the other direction. And I said, look, civil rights is, is, is a, a large topic. There is something that we're doing that will make you happy to come to work today. Hmm. And people took me up on that offer. They said, look, I don't want to work on this issue, but I do want to work on race discrimination, on, on language access, disability rights. We did more for disability rights in four years under Trump than eight years under Obama. I'm also very proud of that legacy as well. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so I came from civil rights from a perspective of human dignity, we're all created equal. We have a fundamental right to life and building from there. Others came from another Pretty radical idea. Yeah, others came from another <laughs> view. But we met, and where we met, we achieved tremendous amounts, and especially on disability rights. We did so much during COVID to make sure there was no rationing of ventilators away from people with disabilities because they were deemed less worthy of life. I mean, these were real questions that we dealt with, and, and I'm so proud of what we were able to do um, and we brought people along that, that you might not expect that this, well, one this of the junction. Themes, one of the themes of what I'm trying to do here is to get people to understand, forget about Congress. I mean, don't forget about it, literally, but most of the actions in the administrative Absolutely. state, most of the actions in these agencies, 
And we got to train our, our our spotlight on these agencies, which is why I'm really happy yep. you uh, you thunk this up. Yeah, no, and, and let me add I mean, on that point something that Roger just said. I highlight something that Roger just said. What, what Roger highlights is the importance of personnel is policy yeah. when it comes to the administrative state. And conservatives frequently talk about, you know, we need to shrink the administrative state. We need to shrink government. And, you know, some of that's true. But we also have to know when we're in power, how do we use the rightful authority of the administrative state to protect human flourishing, to promote human flourishing? I mean, like, not everything that the administrative, do the administrative state does should be eliminated. The stuff Roger was doing should not be eliminated. That's what we, when we have power, we need to be doing that, not just in his old department, civil rights at HHS, but in all of the federal agencies, right? We, we should eliminate the stuff that they shouldn't be doing, right? There is uh, bloat in the administrative state. There is overreach. But when we're in power, we got to make sure that we have people who are equipped and ready to use that power to promote human flourishing. And that's what Roger was doing. We need more people like that the next time uh, we have an administration that'll play ball. So will you expand this to other, other agencies? I mean, I'm just sort of... <laughs> Thinking As the myself. budget allows, Justice, I would love to. Justice Department seems like a very good idea. Is anybody <clears throat> that is else? The idea. Yeah, the idea is so we have the HHS Accountability Project. So right. We're laser focused, uncovering all the bad, supporting whatever good comes out. It's mostly bad, unfortunately, right now. <clears throat> and then to be ready with yep. policy prescriptions when there's different people in power that are more amenable to the right policy prescriptions that we've been following and tracking. So it's about holding. Uh, the agency accountable, and then we need to ha have this model with other agencies as well, because you're absolutely right. That's where all the action is. It's not how the founders envisioned the American democracy uh, playing out, but here we are, and the agencies are with us. They have tremendous amount of power, and once we have the ability to have the right people in, how are we going to wield that power? Are we going to do it according to the law? Are we going to do it according to the right principles, according to science? or ideology. And those are the questions that we have to grapple with. And we have to be ready for when the time comes. Well, it needs to be. I think we need to expand this and work on this. Uh, yeah. This is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Ryan Anderson and Roger Severino. And we're talking about the importance of shining a bright light on uh, what the administrative state is doing uh, to us, but also could be doing for us if we help, uh, if we help get that right. Uh, we were talking about transgender. You've written a couple of books, and we were talking about this before, you're now going to complete the trifecta. Your first book was on marriage, yep. and I think I wrote an op-ed in support of that. Thank you. And it was the first time I'd ever been really trolled. <laughs> it gets easier as, as you go along. You get used to it, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was interesting and somewhat painful. And then, and then you wrote, wrote a book on uh, the transgender uh, moment, right. Harry Meet Sally. Harry became the movie was Harry Met Sally. Okay, right. Yeah. Harry became Sally, yeah. and that was on Amazon through the Trump administration, and then sort of the instant uh, Biden was uh, was inaugurated, Amazon pulled it. Yep, that's exactly right. So the book came out February of 2018, and then February of 2021. So you know, a few weeks after the inauguration, um, they disappeared the book. You know, the hardback, the paperback, the Kindle, the audiobook, even used copies of the book. You can't get them through uh, Amazon. How did you find out? I, I was at my niece's birthday party, and um, someone messaged me to say, hey, I'm trying to buy your book, and I can't find it. 
And so I assumed they were searching for the wrong title or something like that. So I pull up the Amazon The app movie title. Yeah, no, because <laughs> people make that mistake. When yeah. They're looking for the, a book version of When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. And, um, and it was gone. And so, you know, I text my book agent. And you know, he says he's never seen anything like it. We think like, maybe someone forgot to, like, renew the copyright. Who knows? But we eventually found out that, you know, this was intentional. And they're not backing down. Um, the, the next book, the book that I'm, you know, working on right now is on abortion. So I'll have, I'll have covered the marriage debate, the, the gender identity debate, and now the life debate. Um, but before we go into the yep. next book, of which I want to do, what was the, what's the story, the transgender story? What, yeah. was, your, what was your theme? What so was... the basic idea, the, the very first footnote in the book is to eight different news articles using the phrase transgender moment. The secular media and the religious conservative media were saying that, you know, I think it was the year 2015, 2016 was the transgender moment. You know, the year that Bruce became Caitlin, the year that the Obama administration said sex now means gender identity. And I said, okay, like accepting that framework, I want to write a book to make this moment as short as possible, because this is not a moment that is helping people. Uh, we're, we're harming people. Um, putting a child on puberty blocking drugs, giving a teenage girl testosterone, performing mastectomies. There are two 13-year-old girls that had double mastectomies performed on them with our taxpayers uh, funding funding the study for that. Um, this is not um, uh, in their best interest. This is an abuse of science, an abuse of medicine. And I wanted to write a book that would make the moment as short as possible. And so what the book does, it, 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 it plays on the, 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 the movie When Harry Met Sally. Because when the movie came out 30 years or so ago now, the idea was that men and women are so different, they can't just be friends. Mm -hmm. Today, men and women are interchangeable. Men and women, it's a fluid concept. You could be trapped in the wrong body. You could identify as both. You could identify as neither. You could identify somewhere in between. Um, you know, we went from very, very rigid idea of male and female where they couldn't be friends to an idea in which this is kind of amorphous. Uh, it's both fluid and it's um, plastic. And so I look at the science, I look at the medicine, I look at the philosophy, I look at the law, the public policy, the culture, and some personal uh, testimonies um, to just analyze the question from every different uh, angle. Um, and, you know, the response has been gratifying. I've heard from a lot of people who said this helped me with my gender dysphoria so that I knew I didn't have to transition. There are other ways of dealing with a sense of alienation from my body than trying to become the opposite sex, and it's helped parents. Don't you think this has ultimately got to collapse from its unreality and, and complexity? I mean, uh, James Lindsay was on. He hmm. did the book Critical Theories yeah. about, about some of this, and he says if you look at the LGBTQ, L LGBT, we're talking about the T, yep. then we've had a Q to this. And Q is you get to be whoever you want to be. There are, there are a lot more than the that. Letter, the letter... Half the alphabet is now in the acronym. But he said basically Q is canceling out all the other letters because and, and the women's movement... Well, it's the logical end of the sexual revolution. Hmm. I think it goes to that. Uh, you could blame heter heterosexuals for the divorce culture that broke down the notions of marriage. And from that, it's gone on where it's about self-actualization, decoupling... Uh, the, the procreative act from procreation, and and you could be whoever you want to be, whatever you want to be, even, and that sort of notion uh, questions our human embodiment, and one of the things I had to deal with was the scientific questions at HHS, and that's why I asked the question of of Levine, what does it mean to be male or female? That is a scientific question, with profound implications 
on drug research, on uh, uh, OBGYN practices, should they even exist as a separate, you know, is, are, are, is there such a thing as persons with uh, uh, uteruses versus women, right? Because that's now the language. Birthing people is now being repla replacing mothers. And it's a reductionist view. And people view. are getting fired by, for not using that term. Correct. And it's a reductionist view, and you're and just scientifically, to take a step back, we're more than just body parts. We are an integrated whole, mind, body, and soul. And if you, cannot, not, if you get the question wrong, what does it mean to be a male or a woman, a man or a woman, you're going to get all sorts of things wrong down the line. And the question of... Uh, ideology replacing science is crucial, and one of the things we're looking at is making sure that Ryan's book was fully footnoted. You had every research paper supporting your view as to the actual harms and, and lack of benefits, uh, and that's being ignored in the name of ideology, and it's hurting more than anybody, kids. Have you all done some work at the center on, on defining what science is and what isn't? Because we've had this whole science issue come up mm -hmm. with the pandemic and the virus in the last two years is that part of your part of your uh, work we, 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 i don't know if we've had anyone really define what science you know per se is but yeah. i mean we have a um, a former yale uh, professor of pharmacology on roger's team at hhs looking at the science on things like puberty blocking drugs cross-sex hormones chemical abortions um there's a, and also looking at some of the vaccine data there's a lot of bad science um that's being used to support bad public policies. And so, you know, one of the things we're doing, we're not so much asking the abstract question of what is science as so much as the applied Very specific of uh, what does good science on these particular, particularly important questions, questions about life, questions about our embodiment as male and female, questions about the vaccine, its efficacy, its safety, um, the conscience aspects of this and how it was developed. I mean, we're, we're I would say there were much more, um, uh, looking at the knowledge that will make a difference, the, the, the application of science to mm -hmm. these disputed questions of public policy. We were talking about our, your trifecta. Yeah. We've done marriage, we're doing sexuality with, with Mary, the Mary book, and now, now your third one is? It's, uh, it'll come out this June. It's uh, going to be tied with the Dobbs case, the uh, uh, Supreme Court case. Uh, what the Dobbs case is? This is the, 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 the case that comes. It's a 15-week abortion ban, uh, protects babies after 15 weeks, out of Mississippi. And the question is whether or not the court will uphold that law. And more importantly, in the process, will they overturn Roe? Will they finally admit 49 years after the fact that they got it wrong, that the Constitution does not protect uh, a doctor's right to kill a baby in the womb? And then the book's titled Tearing Us Apart, um, How Abortion Harms Everything and it's Solves Nothing. It's certainly done nothing. that. And, and, and the idea behind the book, Alexandra DeSanctis and I are co-authoring it. The idea is that abortion harms unborn children but it harms everything. Abortion harms women, it harms mothers, it harms families, it harms the relationship between men and women. Uh, it harms uh, equality when you have sex-selective abortions, when you have eugenic abortions. Uh, it harms the practice of medicine. A lot of professional medical associations have been corrupted by abortion. It harmed our laws. It harmed our politics. It harms our confirmation process for judges. It harms our elections. It harms our culture. So, I mean, we more or less systematically go through and document um, it harms everything it touches, and it solves nothing. Uh, and so we got to not only say that the court got it wrong in Roe,
but we also then need to move to abolish abortion. And this is the abolitionist movement of our generation, the way that the original abolitionists and, and, and had to put it into the slavery. And when does the black community realize it's also genocide when it's aimed at them? Well, many are. I mean, we we quote, I think it's the third chapter in the book, we go through the 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 eugenic aspect of this. There's a, a, a racial dimension, a disability dimension, a sex dimension. Um, and what it ends up being is that able-bodied white males, um, uh, people have a preference for, people with disabilities, people who are the wrong race, uh, and people who are the, quote, wrong sex, meaning women, blacks, Hispanics, and people with disabilities tend to be abor aborted at much higher rates. Well, we're becoming like China. There's a discriminatory aspect to abortion. That's right. Well, China, when they had the one sex policy, you already know this, was that, that, that they wanted boys. Yeah. And so now, 30 years later, we've got, what, 20, 50, 100 million more boys than girls that are 20 years old? Yeah. And there's a, a popular civil rights uh, cause of action. It's called disparate impact. Yep. And it's very popular among progressives. But think about the disparate impact on African Americans in terms of abortion. There are fewer African-Americans in America today, disproportionately. Uh, and that's just a tragedy. Yep. And it, it's interesting that you, the, the language that, that is frequently used, they'll say this is a sex-selective abortion, as if it's a good thing. You, you get to select what color your car is going to be. We're <laughs> using the language that this is discrimination on the basis of sex. And normally the left condemns discrimination on the basis of sex, unless it takes place in the womb, right? The, discrimination on the basis of disability status. Normally the left condemns that unless it takes place in the womb. Discrimination on the basis of race, normally the left condemns that, unless it takes place in the womb. I mean, and, and so you know, one of the things we're gonna hope to do, achieve with the book is change how we think about and how we talk about this. Sex selective makes it seem like it's a good thing. Um, discriminatory abortion highlights the hypocrisy of the left. They're against discrimination in all other contexts except for lethal discrimination mm -hmm. against unborn people. And, and it's anti-science because they'll make the move that they say, well, we don't know if it's a human being. Right. We absolutely know it's a human being. It has a sex. Of course. Right. That's how... <laughs> that, you know, and we know so much about DNA now yeah. that we didn't know 150 years ago. There's a lot of, um, I mean, I think intentional lying going on. They know better than what they're saying. They know they, they say, when they say it's a clump of cells, it's not yet a human being. They know full well that it's a human being when it's their grandchild. Right? No one says, here's the ultrasound of my fetus. Everyone says... Here's the ultrasound of my baby. Here's the ultrasound of my grandbaby. The first photo in many people's baby books today is their ultrasound picture. Mm -hmm. uh, no ultrasound technician says to an expectant mother, you know, here's your baby. Uh, what is the new term they're using? Um, pulsating. Um, uh, they don't want to use heartbeat now. The pro-choice side wants to say that it's Cardiac not a heartbeat. Cardiac activity. Cardiac polar activity, I think, is the... Yeah. No, every I've been with my wife for three different children, the ultrasounds. So I think that's six ultrasounds now. They all say, that's your baby's heartbeat. This is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Ryan Anderson and Roger Severino, and I'm learning about cardiac, what are we calling this? Cardiac polar activity. Polar activity, like that. another chance to use language to, to, to hide the truth. Mm -hmm. yep. Wow. Uh, so this book comes out in... What, in June. In June? Yep. So we'll we'll look for that to be banned as well. <laughs> well, hopefully, I mean, like, th there are some conservatives who want to get canceled because then they can like fundraise off it's, of it's it. It's good or, for it's good for yeah. You can. I prefer not to be. I want. I mean, like, <laughs> the type of book I write is, and you know, and Alexandra, my co-author, is the same way. Like, she and I are not writing a bomb-throwing red meat book. We are writing a book to equip 
of the movement. We want this book to be the playbook for, for people for the next 50 years of the pro-life movement to pass the laws, to enact the policies, to champion the administrative state, to protect babies and to serve women. I mean, abortion is bad for women. We should be supporting both the mothers facing unplanned pregnancies and the children and the broader family, the broader community. Um, this is going to be a, if the court does the right thing in overturning Roe, it's going to be a real policy question of how the pro-life and the conservative movement respond to protect both. Well, one one line of action people talk about is, well, this the, the court can settle this as a federal issue, but then it becomes a state issue, and then that becomes part of the public debate, yeah. and people yeah. can in each state decide what they that's, want or not that's want. That's very likely how the court will decide. I'm, I'm optimistic that the court will strike down right. Roe versus Wade and put it in the dustbin of history, finally, uh, like Plessy versus Ferguson <clears throat> and Dred Scott, and say these are the, the hall of shame of Supreme Court cases. But the way they're going to do it is very likely to just return it to the Kick states. Kick it to the states. Yes, and well, say... I, well, I think it's where it should have been anyway. And while well, you have Texas that has the heartbeat ban, uh, which is still in place now, so you get you get a, a trial run. Heartbeat ban meaning... You, that uh, abortions could not be performed after a child's heartbeat is detected. And there you've seen how you get a preview of a post-Roe world, and the sky is not falling, Right. Uh, you have some states are going to be very liberal in their abortion laws. Some states are going to be very pro-life with their abortion laws. And that's where the battleground is going to, going to go to. But we want to have it ultimately universal to make yeah. abortion unthinkable at any state. And, and, and let me just add one thing to Roger said. You know, he said that the most likely outcome here is that the Supreme Court will return to the states. Um, I think you were speaking quickly. I think, I think what he really means is it's going to return to the democratic process because right. the federal governments, I mean, we agree the federal government's going to have a role in this. There are federal okay. bans mm -hmm. on partial birth abortion. Yeah, returning to the states was really my phrase. Yeah, but, uh, but, but by that you mean return it to the people. Yeah. The people working through our uh, elected representatives, meaning it's going to be in the legislative branch of government. And that means both the states and the federal government. And I think it also means the federal agencies. The next pro-life administration we have um, the executive branch of government can also enact federal uh, protections within, you know, the rightful authority that they yeah. have. And then I think there's also a question of whether or not, and, and I'm on the side that the, the answer is yes, is that the, the rightful understanding of the 14th Amendment, um, it's all people. And that includes, they, they weren't using this as like a philosophical concept of to be a person, you need to be a Peter Singer style person. They meant all human beings. Uh, and the 14th Amendment was about empowering Congress to enact legislation to protect newly freed slaves who were being denied equal protection in the states. So the 14th Amendment, I think, rightly understood should be about empowering the federal legislative branch of government to enact legislation to protect all people when the states refuse to do so. I think the unborn fit there, and I think that's the federal hook that authorizes Congress uh, to make laws that protect unborn babies. Um, and that's going to be, I think, much more of this is going to be possible uh, come June, because I think the court will do the right thing. And, and the Biden administration is preparing for a bad decision from their perspective, a fantastic decision, uh, according to the law and the Constitution, on Roe going down by having the agencies lift safety protections on chemical abortions. Right? The next move, and they've already done it, is to say you don't need to go to a doctor physically to get an ultrasound to see how far along you've gone in your pregnancy before you could get a chemical abortion by mail. And they want to make it a chemical abortion 
as, as uh, <clears throat> blasé as getting a vitamin at CVS. When if you think about it, it is a poison that is so strong that it could kill a, a child in the womb. This is serious business and you have all sorts of complications. You've had maternal deaths uh, that have resulted from chemical abortions and they've lifted the, the safety protections. This sounds, this sounds terrible. Right. That, and that's, I mean, this sounds just so disgusting. And this is what the Biden people are doing. This is an opportunity for the next administration that is pro-life to have HHS, FDA, the right. This is, again, my point about when we are in power, we have to use the administrative state. We last three years. I mean, all the bad stuff that it's going to be a long 36 months or whatever. We're (laughs) going to be busy at EPPC. (laughs) Rogers HHS project at EPPC, we're going to be busy. So uh, it doesn't bear directly on your mission, but it bears on everything we're talking about here. Speech, social media, censorship. Um, I don't know whether Carrie's had Carrie's wife yep. she's the, the this is the power couple Carrie Severino, <laughs> yes and she's uh, the more impressive half yeah she she helped get some really good <laughs> justices on the court and she did yes she did she and did. for that we thank her she's wonderful um but uh, what about the speech what about yeah. social media companies yeah. you guys really this not... is right on mission okay yeah, so what, is, yeah. what talk about that so uh, i became president february of uh, this past year. So it's been 11 months now. And, you know, one of the first things I wanted to do was to, you know, wrestle with the big tech question. And then three le- weeks later, my book got canceled. So the timing was providential because then a few weeks after that, we hired a uh, Bill Barr's uh, former assistant who had helped him with the Section 230 project. Section 230 is the, the part of the Communications Decency Act that gives a certain exemption, a certain protection to uh, various communications companies, including social media. Um, but that we think they're, they're abusing. Um, they're it, was, using- it was basically to help the fledgling social media companies not getting killed with the cradle with, with, with liability for speech. And even, even before it was social media, I mean, this is like back when America or in line. This is like chat rooms. This is like early internet. Yeah. If I remember correctly, is it 1990? Dial up. Yeah, I mean, this is bing bong, but bing bong. I mean, <laughs> remember from our childhoods. Um, uh, well, your childhood. My- <laughs> <laughs> Ryan's technically a millennial. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well. I remember the dial-up modems. I had a 14.4, a 28.8, 56K, all of that. But, so we, we were very fortunate to hire Claire Morell, um, who had been in the Trump administration, DOJ, working on some of the big tech stuff. She's now co-authored a series of op-eds in the Wall Street Journal and Newsweek policy papers um, with pretty prominent um, conservative law professors, including Philip Hamburger uh, at Columbia. And... Um, we're trying to think through what is the right policy fix to prevent big tech from abusing their market power to undermine the common good, undermine human flourishing, undermine uh, speech, because free speech isn't just a legal concept. It is a legal concept. It should also be a cultural value, right? If we can't freely exchange ideas, democratic self-government is at stake, right? When they censored uh, the New York Post story about Hunter Biden so that that couldn't be disseminated, couldn't be shared, that can have consequences for how elections go. Um, when you are the largest retailer in the world, which is what Amazon is, and you prevent certain books from going to market, right, from reaching markets, I mean, they are the market. That's a quote from the Wall Street Journal. Amazon is the market. It's going to have an impact on not only what people read, but what future books get written. I mean, think about the chilling impact here. There's what, self-censorship what, that happens. Yes. I mean, I think about it this even with the show. I'm always thinking... Talking to my censors at YouTube here, we were saying stuff that's uh, going to violate the community guidelines or not. Um, and now it, imagine you're the publisher of a, you know, do you want to pay an author to write a book, pr- 
print all the books and then not be able to distribute them because right. Amazon cuts you off. Right. And that's yeah. going to lead um, you know, the executives at publishing houses to say, well, maybe we shouldn't touch that issue because we don't want to be canceled. That's the yeah. biggest thing I and, fear. And the, the free speech value <clears throat> is a premise of our democracy. Right? The idea is that you need a virtuous religious people yep. uh, and educated to be able to vote the right way for the common good. Well, that was premised on having a public square where people could actually exchange ideas or a town hall. Yep. Now, who owns the actual public square? It's Amazon, Google, and Facebook. That is the public square now. It's not a park anymore. It's all virtual. And, and I think it's a mistake to say that we take an absolutist sort of libertarian approach. Well, that's a private entity, private property, and, and it doesn't matter. They get to control it. No, we, we, if it undermines the notion and the underpinnings of our democracy, we have to take, give a very hard look at that. Well, I, I, George Will was on and with John Boudreaux and, and John Tamney, and they were taking the very strong libertarian view that, well, Microsoft was once this dominant monopoly, AT&T was once this dominant monopoly, and then Amazon will have its day, and something else will come along to replace it. I don't think I agree with that. I think there's. I think it's having its day may may change the course of history. And, and I and I think even if or that's it's not correct, having its day, as conservatives, we can you know walk and chew gum at the same time. Like I want to inspire market competition to compete with these companies, right? Yeah. I think conservatives should be building our own tech ecosystem, and so it's going to be important that you know as much as possible, you know we have Hollywood companies. Rogers Brother is you know working on some of these things in Hollywood. We should be doing that while simultaneously saying the largest market actors today need to play by the rules. Right? I mean, so, so I don't think it needs to be an either or. So is your or. solution driving towards doing something about 230? Uh, I think Amending the, it or do... 230 is one aspect of this. I think anti-discrimination law is another. I think um, antitrust law. And then I think common carrier. And, and all of them touch different aspects because, I mean, 230 won't solve all of the problems. But we do need some Section 230 reform. Um, I think one of the more promising proposals, it, it's something that Claire co-authored with Philip Hamburger at Columbia Law School, is to say we should treat some of these larger social media companies to a similar way that we treat the electric company and the water company. In fact, you know, this electric company, I don't know who your provider is, but they can't say, Bill, because you're conservative, we won't serve you any longer. We're turning off your lights, right? They, they, there's certain non-discrimination requirements that common carriers have. And the idea here is that what they do is they... they they, they, they carry electricity, electricity in a way that's common to everyone in this neighborhood. Twitter is more like a common carrier. It's not um, Jack Dorsey's speech. It's your speech, my speech, Roger's speech, and he's just carrying it. Jack, way, Jack, Jack doesn't believe that. <laughs> no, but, but this is where I think conservatives should be uh, um, uh, thinking is um, in the same way that your phone provider, right? Maybe you have ATT, maybe you have Verizon, I don't know. They can't say, well, wait, because you're a conservative, we're not going to let you speak on the phones. Or because you use certain language, we're not going to let you speak on the phones. Um, if Roger's correct that you know some of these social media companies have kind of become our uh, public squares, we should be thinking about what laws do we want to pass to protect how that public square functions. Right? The, 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 the default shouldn't just be uh, it's a free-for-all. Uh, we have to decide what rules do we want to govern this aspect of the market. And you're a businessman, you know, there's all sorts of rules. Some of them are misguided, some of them are not. We need to think through what are the rightful rules to govern this aspect of big tech. 
Uh, as usual, we've run out of time. <laughs> Roger, you want to weigh in on this one just before we get out of here? Yeah, if you if you think about the network effects yeah. that we have with big tech, they, they have an entrenched monopoly power that we haven't seen in, in other areas. And it's hard Ever. to... Yeah, it's hard to see an upstart uh, being able to compete. I don't see it. You, with you that. call me. A I can't imagine throwing some money into a so startup. So we're in a new world and it's having <clears throat> dramatic impacts on our society. And if we if we are unable to uh, get information we want, are we able to think freely? And and that's a scary prospect. If if a private entity or a government entity ultimately ends up controls controlling how we can think. And then we can't deliberate well, there are an awful, democracy. There are an awful lot of elites that want just that, though. I mean, Klaus, Klaus Schwab runs the World Economic Forum talking about the Great Reset and seeing that the the pandemic is the opportunity yeah. to and, do that. And, and our that, view is, that, in effect, makes means making common cause with these social media companies. Our, our view is that the truth, if allowed, will win out. Right. That that's, that's the premise. But if the truth isn't allowed to get out, then we're in trouble as a democracy. YouTube, I think we may talk about ivermectin here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, thanks, guys. This is great. Ryan, where do we find you? So we're eppc.org. Okay. And Roger and I are both on Twitter. I'm at Ryan T. And at Roger Severino underscore. Okay, so on Twitter. And um, we, will, uh, we will find you. And we're going to continue this because I think as we always have, we just sort of got into the beginning of a bigger conversation. So thanks. I'm interested in what we're going to talk about next time, and I hope you are. This has been The Bill Walton Show uh, with Ryan Anderson and Roger Severino, who are with the Ethics and Public Policy Center and doing a lot of great work, and uh, hope you're enjoying it. You can find us at thebillwaltonshow.com and all the major podcast platforms, YouTube, Rumble, um, and we're on Monday nights uh, on CPAC Now at 7 o'clock streaming. So uh, we'll see you then. Hear from me then. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.